and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, a podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence and worldwide environmental issues. Instead of a coffee feature, today I'll be featuring a cafe. Listen to the end to find out more. In this episode, I speak with Emily Guilford. Emily is an ecologist and zoologist based in Falmouth. This was my first in a series of local walking podcast episodes, where we take a short walk in nature, have a cup of coffee or other hot drink, and then switch on the mic for an outdoor episode recording. We talked about using behavioural ecology and effective science communication to influence conservation change on both an organisational and individual level. As this is our first proper episode outdoors in a public space in quite a while, I should apologise for the tech issues, human interruptions and occasional difference in volume. I do hope you bear with us uh, despite this as it was a really interesting conversation. Hi Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. It's really cool to actually do an in-person recording for once for the first time in like I think over a year now. Um, we're at Argle Reservoir, which is a really beautiful reservoir near um, near Falmouth, uh, where we both live. And we'll start off as always by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us kind of about you and how you started getting interested in the natural world? Yeah. Um, so I'm Emily. Hi. Um, so I, that's a really good question in terms of when I started kind of getting interested in the natural world. Um, so my kind of passion is understanding animal behaviour and animal, um, animal cognition. That's what I'm really interested in. Um, and I always kind of wanted to work with bears. And I think that really kind of stemmed from my parents giving me a Winnie the Pooh themed bedroom, <laughs> which is a bit, yeah, a bit childish. But I, I kind of always wanted to, to go on and understand animals. I started off wanting to be a vet. Um, but unfortunately, chemistry is not something that I'm particularly good at. Um, and I kind of I went to an open day and I said to somebody, you know, what, what do you recommend for someone that wants to understand animals? And they said, oh, have you heard of zoology? Um, so I came down here to Penryn to study zoology at the University of Exeter's campus down here. And that's kind of when I started learning more about the natural world and when I started wanting to conserve things. Um, so I put an undergraduate in zoology and a master's in ecology. Cool. Um, I'm just going to move this slightly closer because, um, yeah, you're a little quiet. Okay, sorry, um, I'm a quiet person. <laughs> no, that's no problem at all. Uh, yeah, that should be good. Yeah. Cool. Um, so one of your areas of research is looking at animal behaviour and yeah. behavioural ecology. Mm. Um, a lot of my listeners, I'm sure, will know what zoology as a subject is. Yeah. Behavioural ecology, fairly self-explanatory for scientists, but in layman ter- layman's terms, what is it? So essentially behavioural ecology is just understanding why animals do what they do. So this could be a range of things, so you might want to understand you know, an, an animal's kind of sexual history or sexual life history or, or why it decides to kind of mate in a certain way. So you might have animals that have one partner for life or you might have animals that have multiple partners. And behavioural ecology kind of looks at the differences between these animals and why they might behave in the certain ways that they do. Um, and behavioural ecology is absolutely huge. It will probably take me hours to explain to you all the ins and outs yeah. of it. Um, but for example, what I'm really interested in, in animal is is <laughs> sorry is animals' responses to um, anthropogenic change. So I'm really interested to see how kind of our impacts as humans affect these animals. Because I know you know this is coffee with conservationists. I might not seem like a conservationist because I study ecology, but I think it's really important to understand animals' responses to things like anthropogenic change to understand why we need to conserve them and how we can effectively conserve them. 
Yeah, definitely. And so, uh, yeah, for people who don't know, anthropogenic uh, just basically means human impact. Um, so the Anthropocene, I think, uh, do people, when do people say it started, this sort of era of... I'm not actually sure. I think it's, yeah, I can't quite remember. I'll have to look that up and insert it later. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, anthropogenic is anything to do with humans and our kind of impact on the world around us. Um, in terms of using behavioural ecology for conservation, um, how, how can it be used or how has it been utilised uh, recently? So I suppose in, in terms of how it can be used, like I, I said before, kind of understanding how animals respond in certain ways, particularly a great example of this is climate change. So understanding how animal movement might change because of climate change can help us to kind of put things in place to make sure that we're trying to restrict the impact that we have on these animals. So understanding, for example, migration routes, um, we can kind of understand how we can act as humans and as conservationists to try and make sure that we minimise impacts on animals. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, the processes you've described, so the research that uh, behavioural ecologists do, yeah. has has that been kind of um, put into practice anywhere in the UK that you know of? I mean, in, so what I did for my undergraduate project, I, I suppose you could look at in terms of behavioural ecology. Mm. So um, what I looked at is kind of hedgehog movements across the UK, particularly in Cornwall, and tried to understand, you know, because hedgehogs according to previous research, we'll move up to two to three kilometres per night to try and get around and, and that kind of thing. And, and what we really didn't understand was why they were declining. Because mm. um, quite a lot is known about hedgehogs in terms of you know what they look like, what they eat, that kind of thing, but not a lot about their population levels. They're nocturnal animals, they're quite hard to see. And they don't like humans particularly, which is why they're hard to see. They try and keep themselves and they keep themselves at night time. Um, so we knew that they travel really far and we knew that they were declining, but we couldn't quite link those two things. Um, and we actually found that the way to kind of the way to kind of help increase hedgehog numbers was to create kind of they're called hedgehog highways, but to create kind of connections between environments to make sure that these animals could you know increase their numbers and get far enough and not get stuck in people's gardens. And I suppose that's quite a potentially well-known example of that. Mm. Kind of understanding how these animals behave and and how they live and how they breed and that kind of thing. They need all of that access to that area to get around and to increase their numbers, to have babies, essentially. Um, so understanding that behaviour helped us to understand what the problem was, and then it helped us to put that kind of conservation measure, or just that really easy measure in place. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good example, because I think a lot of people will be familiar with uh, both hedgehogs and how they're declining. Yeah. Um, is, is there anything that you'd suggest, uh, having studied hedgehogs, yeah. that uh, the average person can do to improve their mobility and help them from home yeah um, so i suppose the first quickest easiest thing is especially if you own your own home is to cut a hole in your fence it should be about i think 13 centimeters wide but you can obviously check this um just have a quick google of hedgehog highways um, there's a wonderful website called hedgehog street and they give you all the guidance on how to do it but you just cut a little hole in your fence um, obviously ask your neighbor's permission if that's you know mm. a fence that you share um, or just have a little brick removed from your wall, for example, and just give them give hedgehogs the opportunity to move between spaces. Um, another thing you can do is to keep a wilder area of your garden. Um, obviously, this doesn't have to be absolutely huge, just an area that hedgehogs can you know, shelter, um, and also somewhere they can find food, so insects and, and different types of, kind of um, foraging substrate, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really great advice. Um, in terms of, I mean, you've done a lot, and I think it's quite... Um, 
hard to cover all of it in terms of communication and communicating uh, conservation policy to the general public yeah. and quite complicated topics, breaking it down to people who don't have a scientific or academic background. Yeah. Um, that's what the podcast is all about, really. So um, why do you think that's so important? So, firstly, um, so I mentioned I did my undergrad in zoology, so I think one of the first lectures I ever had, um, one of the academics said, oh, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of scientific papers. And quite honestly, I'd never seen a scientific paper in my life. Um, I kind of just, as I said, I wanted to be a vet. I then realised I wasn't going to be a vet. I wasn't good enough at, at chemistry. And I, I thought I like animal behaviour. And I went kind of straight into it. I'd never read a scientific paper. And the first scientific paper I read was completely inaccessible. And I think that's a problem with a lot of science and a lot of... Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a problem with a lot of science because... People want to understand the natural world, people want to help the natural world, but if you put a barrier in place that means that they can't, then the fault is on you, it's not on the people not trying to have that action. People want to take action, and I think that's why it's really important to make sure science is accessible. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's not possible to ask the scientists to make that research accessible. Sometimes you need a middleman, you need somebody to make that kind of secondary, secondary paper or whatever that might be to make the science understandable and digestible by you know, I hate the word layman, but by, by a layman, by someone who doesn't have a scientific degree. Yeah, I think it is really important um, in terms of the certain groups within the UK. Um, I know there's a lot of groups that do this very, very well. Um, the Wildlife Trust, for example, mm -hmm. if you look on their, their website, um, they're not going to have peer-reviewed scientific journals. Yeah. They're going to have the findings of those peer-reviewed scientific journals broken down into simple things that anyone can read and understand yeah. um is there any groups that you'd like to talk about briefly that you've worked with in the past or um yeah well where this has been a, a key role for you yeah i mean I, I think i've got to mention bloom and doom um, i mean george you've worked with me on it so um yeah. bloom and doom is where i've been the senior editor now for probably probably almost two years um so what we do at bloom and doom is, is we publish um both online and in print in environmental journalism all positive environmental journalism and we try and kind of, I suppose, water down the science and try and make it more easily understandable. Um, so that's kind of from a broad range of topics. We do cover conservation, but as well as that, we kind of look at policy um, and lots of other different things. So I think Bloom and Doom do that quite well. Um, we're just a group of volunteers and, and we're really passionate about kind of teaching people that kind of thing. Um, another person who I think does this really well and it's someone I interviewed at Bloom and Doom is Professor Callum Roberts. Mm. So he is, you know, he, he is an academic, um, firstly, but he has published a good few books now kind of explaining the science that he's done, explaining his research um, to make it more accessible for readers and I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, what else? I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. No, it's, uh, that's really good that you mentioned Bloom and Doom because as you said, yeah, I've done a bit of work with them mm. and they are a fantastic magazine and website and I know that... Um, people that I've, I've sent a few articles to my friends who um, are very creative and wonderful people but have no in, like real interest in reading scientific papers or finding or even have access to them. A lot of them obviously, unless you're uh, at specific universities, a lot of them are behind paywalls or just not even really common knowledge or accessible to anyone um, for you know varying and often good reasons. Um, but occasionally annoying reasons as well. Um, lack of scientific funding being a massive one. Um, 
yeah, there's there's so many friends of mine have learned a lot from Bloom and Doom. I think it, I mean it doesn't even have to be like a full blown article to explain things. I know there's lots of fantastic Instagram accounts that are obviously completely free to access. I think there's one called Simple Zoology or Simply Zoology mm -hmm. that just explains simple things like all the scientific terms. Like I said, anthropogenic without thinking about it because you know quite a lot of people that I speak to will understand that term, but I know that there are quite a lot of people that won't. Um, so just places like that to just explain the terms and even if you know if you want to have a go at reading a scientific paper just resources like that are amazing for kind of helping you to gain that understanding and not having to sit there you know googling every word out of the paper yeah definitely um i'd really like to talk briefly about your you mentioned you've done a little bit of work with um seals in cornwall yep. and sort of communicating to the general public how precious they are and how kind of fragile um, their habitats are in terms of uh, just, yeah, they're, they're very prone to disturbance. Yeah. Um, Cornwall's a massive, uh, ba based around a massive tourist economy in the summer mm. um, and that can really lead to a lot of disruptions and, and deaths of seals, which is really sad. Um, Grey seals, uh, can you tell us kind of a bit about them? And Because we've, we've never really covered them yeah. on the podcast, so a bit about them and then how... Uh, your work has, has kind of covered them and, and why that's important. Um, so just for a bit of background, I previously worked at the Cornish Seal Sanctuary, so that again is down here in Cornwall in a beautiful place called Gweek. Um, so I, I worked there kind of educating visitors about seals and about seal ecology and, and how we can live with seals. Um, so grey seals are native to the UK, so we have two species here. We have grey seals and common or harbour seals, um, but down here, down south in Cornwall, you're far, far more likely to see a grey seal. Um, I've always said they kind of look a bit like dogs. Um, it's a really easy way to tell grey and harbour seals apart. Grey seals look like Labradors, which I think is really sweet. Um, so grey seals, um, kind of one of the biggest problems that you have with grey seals is, you know, in influences and disturbances from humans. And they're obviously really cute. Like you'll see a lot of pictures, you know, if you Google grey seal, the first thing that's going to come up is going to be a really cute fluffy white pup. And, you know, I, I was, I was kind of, shocked when I kind of learned when I first started working at the seal sanctuary and through my degree about how badly human interactions can influence the seals. It's all good. Okay. Um, so, I'm not sure exactly what you want to cover. Um, so, I'm actually working on a course at the moment for the Field Studies Council with my colleague Beck about seals and I've been learning a lot from um, an organisation called Cornwall Seal Group Research Trust, which is run by a fantastic woman called Sue. Yeah. Um, and she teaches you a lot about kind of how to live properly and well and how to respect seals. Because obviously it's, it's really tempting to go somewhere, look off the edge of a cliff and see, you know, thousands of seals calling out on the sand. Um, but you really need to kind of take into account... Th these animals have predators in the UK, so they're predated by orcas. and. You know they're going to be scared of humans. I mean, we're terrifying to literally every other animal on animal on Earth. Um, so I think if you see a seal, and this was something I, I learned from working at the seal sanctuary and from working with the field studies councils and, and with Susaya, um, just just be wary of animals. I think that that appeals appeal <laughs> that applies to seals. Mm. That applies to everything. You know, don't get too close to them. Um, the, the best kind of things you can buy if you want to go seal watching are a long range lens or a pair of binoculars. I think just I suppose in terms of working with seals, the best thing that I learned was to just be wary of other animals. You know, mm. you're one human on the face of the earth. It's lovely if you want to go and see a seal, but I think it's more important that the seal doesn't get hurt because you want to go and look at it. Seals can really hurt themselves if they get disturbed. Um, and I know that 
there's a behaviour that they do called stampeding. So if they get really scared, they will literally run. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen a seal move. They're not particularly graceful. But they will run as fast as they can with their front flippers and they'll scrape everything off their bellies and it can cause them to bleed out. It can cause lots of horrible injuries. Um, and I think, yeah, just, just be wary of other animals. Yeah, no, that's a really important lesson. We we actually got talk from Sue yeah. um, last year about photographing seals yeah. and the, the importance of really not if you don't have to. Yeah, um, never and ever geotag it either. Yeah, and just the whole thing about yeah location tagging yeah. and um, there's I think there's several colonies uh, in West Cornwall. Um, I was going to say something that I shouldn't have said then. Yeah, um, yeah so <laughs> the whole point of um, keeping colonies like that safe is they're large groups of seals. And, yeah, if you, if you go there and take loads of photos and potentially cause disturbance, mm. that's one thing. But then if you kind of tag them, uh, make sure, you know, if you say, oh, this is at this place, yeah. um, it's, you know, loads of people are going to go there, especially yeah. if you have a large, I know several people on my course, for example, have a fairly sizable Instagram following. Yeah. So if they show photos of seals that they mm -hmm. took on the beach and then go, hey, all go to this location and yeah. also take these photos, that's just going to cause, you know, huge disruption. Um, is there any, I mean, do, do you know of any, Obviously, this is probably a question that we could sit down and talk for hours uh, with Sue and other and other colleagues. Um, but do you know of any kind of behavioural changes that have been observed because of human disturbance to grey seals? Yeah. So actually, there's one great example from the seal sanctuary where I work. So as I mentioned, the stampeding behaviour. Um, this can this is observed quite a lot on, on beaches where seals will hear helicopters, for example. Mm. So it doesn't even have to be a disturbance that's particularly close to them. It can just be as soon as they hear the helicopters, they will stampede. Um, and quite a few seals from the seal sanctuary, so that they're um, rescued as pups, and they, they then go through a rehabilitation process. Um, this is obviously only, only pups that are sick, they don't just take in any seal pup. Um, and they go through the rehabilitation process, and they go back out, and they're released into the wild when they reach a certain weight. And there was actually a study done by the seal sanctuary um, that showed that the pups that were released back into the wild were actually less prone to being disturbed. So they would just sit there while the helicopter was going across and, and not stampede where the other seals would, which is really interesting. And obviously, you know, the ideal situation is not to rescue all seals to make sure that they're, they're not as easily disturbed. But in terms of what we can do to minimise disturbance, like George said, you know, we, we can use like long-range lenses keep our distance and not tell other people where the seals are you know as, as much as you know I, I trust that everybody listening to this podcast is going to be respectful and keep their distance and not do silly things and try and feed the seals there will be people out there who will want that picture for instagram mm -hmm. and i think yeah trying to limit the number of people who know where this, those seals are is really important I've, I've been to seal pup releases where i used to work and the number of people that would crowd around and just completely ignore the fact that these are wild animals they can hurt you but you can hurt them more it's just yeah just just be sensible and keep your distance yeah really important lesson there i think um i'm not sure obviously you mentioned that you're not really wanting to talk too much about this because you're very new um but you've just started doing a bit of work or working are you working full-time full-time yeah. full with the field studies council yes. which is an excellent educational group um and they do a load of, produce a load of great resources, among many other things. 
Um, is there anything about the work or that you're allowed to tell us or kind of yeah, it's, it's talk not about? Yeah, it's not that I'm not allowed to tell you. It's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just don't want to... Um, don't want to jinx it because I've only just started. So I started in December and I'm working um, as basically I'm working in part of the um, education eco skills team. Um, so the majority of my job is developing online learning content. So as I said before, you know, we were chatting about how I'm really passionate about making science accessible. So this is a great way for, for me to kind of practice that skill. Um, so like I said, at the moment, I'm working on an online course to, um, to educate people about seals and seal conservation, and seal behavior. So that's really interesting. Um, and I'm also helping on a project uh, with an organisation called Trees for Cities. So that's working with um, deprived communities across the UK with low canopy cover um, to help plant trees and educate people about trees in those areas. Um, that doesn't actually happen in Cornwall, um, but there's plenty of other places across the coast of the UK that we're working with. Yeah, that's really great. Um, and I'll urge anyone uh, listening to go and check them out and find out a bit more about them. Um, for themselves because yeah as you said they do produce a lot of great educational resources um, and I'm guessing a lot of your academic background feeds into that yeah. really really well yeah. as well um, we're going to kind of we can kind of wind it down um, but I want to end off on a quick fire round if that's alright yeah. it I call it a quick fire round because it was supposed to be like I don't know this will be 30 two episodes ago or something ridiculous like the first episode I was like oh this will be exciting quick fire round it's never quick fire the questions are actually quite difficult oh, so if you take like a bit longer yeah. don't worry okay. uh, it's totally fine um the first question is what's your favorite animal bear Andean bear specifically thank you that is I think actually I've said this before but I, I genuinely think that is the fastest um, ever response. I mean, you can't tell from my jumper and my hat, but it is. No, yeah, no, can't <laughs> tell at all. Um, I think, yeah, no, that's probably the, the fastest response I've ever had. That's impressive. Um, do you have a place that you like to go and connect with nature, like the one outdoor place do you feel really, yeah. really at home? Um, so I think one, one place that I love is Tehiddy Woods. So it's in Cornwall near Camborne. Um, it's a fantastic place and I learned about it during my second year at uni. Um, so it's a time where I wasn't feeling great um, I was feeling a bit of uh, you know imposter syndrome quite common um, and it's it's just a lovely place to interact with nature there's lots of wildfowl um, wildfowl is the wrong word <laughs> there's, there's lots of kind of uh, water birds out there hundreds of squirrels um, and it's kind of where I really got to connect with the study species actually that I worked with in my master's project um, so it's a lovely place and I urge you to go there if, if you're nearby yeah, definitely. It's uh, yeah, I've heard a lot about it and been encouraged to go there myself. Go. Um, yeah, don't forget to take a bag of peanuts because you will get jumped by a squirrel. Oh yeah, I've heard. Um, I've actually got two students on my course who gave me a lift up here today uh, on their way to Tahiti. So, oh, you should have gone. Um, I should have gone. Yeah, I should have uh, abandoned you. I would have accepted that excuse. That's fine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, do you have a conservation hero? And by this, I just mean anyone in your f wide field of. Uh, interest that you look up to and respect? Yeah, and um, that's a great question. And I think I'm going to go with a cliche answer, and that's my master's supervisor. Um, so his name is Professor Alex Thornton, and he works with Wild Animal Cognition, which is like my dream. Um, he's, yeah, just a, a fantastic role model. That's actually not a cliche answer at all. <laughs> I don't think we've, we occasionally get like scientific colleagues, but we okay. haven't, nobody's actually said their master's supervisor yet. Okay. So well, I, I, I can change to David Attenborough if it's, um. it's more helpful. <laughs> Um, and last off, I know you started the podcast um, before we started recording by saying you're not a coffee drinker. No. Nope. 
Um, so the last question is usually, how do you take your coffee? But that doesn't apply to you. How do you take your, like, hot drink of some description? Um, I'm a hot chocolate person. Hi, guys. Sorry, guys. Sorry, yeah, no problem. Sorry to interrupt, guys. No worries. Podcast? Thank you. Yeah. What's the subject? Um, animal behaviour and conservation. Oh, nice. So, Happy place to do it as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take that, guys. Have a good day. Um, yeah, sorry, uh, yeah, a, a note to my listeners, um, we're doing this podcast in, near a reservoir, in kind of like a shelter that's used as a fitness hub, um, so there was a couple of interruptions earlier, because we had a small captive audience, um, <laughs> with a small baby, so you might have heard some footsteps and some crying, um, and some little noises, um, and so yeah, because, of, you know, this is the first walking podcast episode, and... We're in the wild, so yeah, there's lots of uh, wild sounds and wild humans wandering around. So yeah, back to the question. Um, you are, did you say you're a hot chocolate person? Yeah, on and off. Um, I'm not actually a hugely hot drinky person, um, but yeah, I'd say a good hot chocolate, oat milk, a lot of whipped cream, and a good few marshmallows. And if I'm feeling like excited, maybe a Colin the Caterpillar on the top, because they're quite nice. Yeah. It's a, it's a good choice. Yeah. It's a very good choice. And the best place for hot chocolate is Slice, the cafe. Um, if you've been there, not too far from family. I haven't, but I'll, I'll add it to I the list. I they have good coffee. Not that I can comment. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I, I mean, there's a surprisingly large amount of podcast guests who just, for a variety of reasons, don't drink coffee. Um, yeah, I should probably change the name. <laughs> um, it's not a very accessible drink to everyone. Um, I think that can be pretty much it. Uh, but before we finish, do you have any kind of um, platforms or online handles that you'd like to, where can people find you or like shout out? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not big into self-promo, but if you want to look at some pictures of bears that I've taken, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at Emily Guildford. It's G-I-L-F-O-R-D. Silly surname. Um, and the only other thing I can recommend is please check out Bloom and Doom. Um, we're completely free to access online. You can read all of the articles that we've previously written. Um, we have a fantastic group of contributors and you can join our contributors group on Facebook um, and we're also currently looking for submissions for our fourth volume depending on when this goes out um, so you can contribute and have your artwork or your writing in print which is a great opportunity yeah awesome I think by the time sadly this does come out that <laughs> you, might have, you might have you might have closed your submissions but yeah. yeah you're always doing more stuff yeah. and if people aren't too fussed about getting their work in print you're also doing amazing regular yeah. call outs for uh, or less regular now but still call yeah. outs for online content yeah we're moving a bit closer to kind of more in print but if you ever have anything you want to write about we're always you know all ears open um for anything that you're passionate about and what to teach other people about cool definitely um well thank you so much this is for making the trip out here and uh yeah i apologize to my listeners for the the interruptions and the the wild change in volume and levels at the minute, but uh, we are using a weird setup, crouched in the corner of a, a weird, like an old barn, um, next to a lake. So, <laughs> bit of a bit of an odd one, but um, yeah. Thank you for bear- bearing with us and uh, listening to us talk in the wild. Thank you guys, and thank you, George. Thanks again to Emily for taking the time to speak to me today. You can find the link to her social media and the Bloom and Doom website, which she mentioned 
uh, as a shout out at the end in the description below. So in today's episode I'm featuring Wild Vibes Argyle Cafe. With each of these walking podcast episodes I'll be highlighting a local cafe and the amazing people who work there instead of just a specific coffee company. Wild Vibes is a small hut situated next to the Argyle Reservoir serving delicious origin coffee to locals, visitors, dog walkers, bird watchers and occasionally podcasters. All the links to their website will be as ever in the description. A big thank you today to the, those who support me on Ko-fi. Your donations here mean that I can do more of these walking podcast episodes and cover more exciting events in the future. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, as well as a few more streaming services. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman jones and this is Coffee with Conservationists. <laughs>